0: Do directly correct. Open Podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Rob King. What's up, Rob? What's going on?
1: Not too much. Uh, Scott's been having internet issues, so <laughs> we almost didn't have a podcast today. Uh oh.
0: <laughs> it's nice to meet you, though, Rob. I, I'm a hero for sure, right? I made it. I fixed the internet.
2: There you go. did it. <laughs> uh. No, I actually, it was funny. I was just on a call that was definitely going to go over and I was like, Hey guys, I'm being interviewed. Got to go. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's the ultimate excuse. Just say I'm joining someone's podcast. You can leave any meeting whenever time you want. You know, it's, it's, it's perfect excuse.
2: Oh yeah. Especially it's a power move too. I was the one running the meeting.
1: <laughs> so,
2: so yeah, I was just like, we're shutting it down. We got to go.
1: Yeah. Well, that's when you get to use the little functionality. It says, Make this other person in charge of the meeting. Yeah, and right. And you just, just exit. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Well, Rob, it's it's really good to see you again. Um, I'm wondering, I got I got a kind of cold question to ask you to open this up. Is Workday or another HRS tool? Are they an employment agency?
2: In 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 what sense? So well
1: in any sense uh, it's going to make more sense in a second when i when i tell you why but i want you, when you think workday or any other hris do you think employment agency
2: no uh, i yeah, guess it's, because it's they're not. Yeah, yeah.
1: well the reason why is because right now workday is being sued um because, uh, and i've got an article i'll include it uh in the show notes about their ai um mm. And they're going back to the, I believe it's the Civil Rights Act or something, one of these long standing acts. And they're being sued as if they are an employment agency. And because typically, if if somebody was using a hiring process to hire a candidate and they were being sued for discrimination, it's the employer that would be sued, not the vendor that's being used. But in this case, they're being sued for using AI and their tool as if they're an employment agency. And I was like, Wow, that's a a pretty big stretch here.
2: So, I don't know. I mean, I I see where that one comes from. It's actually, I almost view it as strangely analogous to the uh, suing all the celebrity endorsers for FTX.
1: Yes, I think that's a
2: great analogy. um, And I don't agree with that either. Uh, I actually agree more with suing Workday for this sort of thing. and, And I think this was inevitable. Um, that that somebody was workday just happens to to be the first.
0: Uh, what, why? Why inevitable though? Like they're not they're not making employment decisions themselves. I mean, they might be offering suggestions of this sort of thing, but in, in re- why, why are f- they culpable?
2: It was funny. I was actually on a call with uh, Al Adamson had organized yesterday, and we were talking about this topic. And in reality, so, so you might say that they're not making automated employment decisions. Right, because oh, there's still a recruiter there, and they can sort the scores and do whatever. Right. but um, they they give a big it, leading it's still, indicator. It's, yeah, they're they I mean, look, we already know that recruiters before AI was a thing. They they spent what on average seven seconds looking at any resume. <laughs> now that they just have a score that tells them whether it's any good, it's essentially an automated uh, employment process. So I, um. I view I view this as as inevitable and especially if if it just gets if it's kind of like a pre-screen thing I mean Workday has such a large market share and so many companies are using it as their ATS if for some reason there is some sort of bias going on in that in that system it could shut you out of the job market mm-hmm. um, and I th- I mean so I think there is a responsibility to to make sure that there isn't adverse impact I don't know how feasible it is to actually be able to do it at, at scale and thinking about all various types of industries and subgroups and so forth, because you could show it doesn't have adverse impact uh, across the U.S. population, right? But it may when you drill into very specific types of jobs. Um, and I don't know reasonably how a vendor could do it, but they they're... I, I feel like it is right, and you start to see states right now, like like uh, like New York, like New York City, ha- has laws around this. So you have to audit this, and and so forth. And that responsibility is on the organizations. Yeah. But I'm not surprised that this lawsuit uh, was brought, and and I don't think it'll get thrown out. Like I I think we're I think you're actually going to oh, see. It's definitely
1: going to get adjudicated. I'm just interested, and you can read it in the article. The article is called When AI Discriminates, Who's to Blame? Um, About kind of the novel legal theory that's being used to approach this, which I'm very curious to see if it sets some kind of legal precedent here. But I I do want to come back to something you're saying about like Workday having such a big market share, and are you effectively shut out of the market? I always think like personality assessments are pretty pervasive in testing people for jobs nowadays. And I wonder if we're s- sort of kind of making it illegal to have a bad personality. <laughs> you know, like, are, are you going to be unemployable? Like, as a person who has a poor personality, am I unemployable now that I have a bad personality just because of all the pervasiveness of these personality assessments?
2: Yeah, sometimes I feel the same way. Um, <laughs> but you know, if you start to think now about I, I think we actually have to fundamentally rethink assessments as well and how, the, how they're conducted uh, because of chat GPT. I think chat GPT is actually now going to just completely transform how we view human intelligence and interactions because any assessment that is now um, written is now an AI can do it just as well. Of course. Right. So, it, you know, the, the search engine changed human intelligence in a similar way, right? It, it deprioritized memory skills for people. And now we're at the second inflection point where... Because once you, you deprioritize memory, then like what's important? Well, your ability to articulate and to write and to convince people of your thoughts and, and put it into some coherent fashion, right? That's like one of the things that, uh, that really differentiated intelligent people. Um, now that's something an AI can do so so what what is the next set uh, like what's the next differentiator for 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 humans I I don't know the answer to that question if I did I'd, I'd well I'd probably be making a lot of money at the moment but uh, <laughs> well is
0: it is it these personality factors that you refer to like the ability to communicate there's not necessarily a personality factor it's more of a
2: skill but but, but how do you assess it now I mean like I I mean it there's these, I, I don't love the the traditional like MBTA style, uh, MBTI, not MBTA yeah, yeah, yeah. style, like personality assessments. I mean, I, I think it's silly. I, uh, you flex on those things way harder, right? But I, you know, when I think about assessments and like proof of work, right? I think research say, what's the most important thing when you're interviewing people and you're doing these types of assessments, it's, it's actually proof of work assessments, um, hey, well, right I thought
1: we were talking about crypto here for a second, but it, it, continue.
2: It, it could be, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, no, there's, anyway, no, it's like it, a
1: whole crypto thing.
2: Yeah, no, but it, but it gets. Oh, yeah. That we, we could devolve this conversation real quick uh, to get my thoughts on that. But um, no, I, I just. Well, I, well, I, well, what, what do you mean
0: by what do you mean by proof of work in this circumstance? You're saying uh, let, like, let's say
2: you're hiring comms professionals right? Like if you're, if you're hiring for a, a comms director, um, well, how do you now know that they're any good? Like back to work samples, sort of this. Real, well, just uh, like the, the show, I remember when I was uh, early in my career, when I dropped out of my PhD program, I was applying at MathWorks to be a technical writer, right? So to, so to describe the algorithms and so forth. And they, they had me write examples of, Hey, here's, here's a technical topic, write me, uh a paper on that topic well now i can just feed it the judge right <laughs> and, and 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 i get that right um there's lots of areas where, where this is gonna gonna take over but just, i i think in some of the assessments i've never been a fan of survey-based assessments and saying that this is that this should dictate whether or not you should get a job um i i just disagree with in general i i I believe more in the power of culture enabling anybody to succeed in a company rather than there's a certain type of person, right? I think it it absolves leaders and managers from any sort of responsibility and just blames TA for not bringing in the right type of people, and I just think that's absurd. I, I think if you actually have a company with a great culture, almost anybody should be able to survive and if yeah if you're a terrible person um you know you'll you'll weed yourself out pretty quick but i don't think you need a survey to tell you that i <laughs> know
0: i think you're hitting at the different levels of the organization which makes like io so interesting so you got like the broad organizational culture then you got this uh like sort of like intermediate uh team aspect where people are influencing one another but you need individuals to fit on that team and you can't have someone with a uh, bad personality <laughs> like Cole mentioned earlier, that they're just going to be washed out because they're just not not a team player. And like as you said, all, all of this sort of communication that's going to take on way more precedent than like does someone have the technical skills to actually do this sort of thing? Yeah, uh, which like maybe we go to sort of like 16 PF
2: sort of uh, personality assessments. I, you know, if, if you talk to any but any of my IO friends, right? I'm not an IO. Uh, I just pretend to be one sometimes. Uh, but the entire assessment space. I, to me, it's regression to the mean. So when you start to implement all of these types of things, like you're, you're deliberately weeding out almost extreme outliers that could be very positive. Like you're, you're trying, you you will regress your workforce to the mean, right? And that might not be good for you because you might take a chance on a, on a guy who is a little quirky, a little weird, has a different experience. And that person may be that, that five, six Sigma outlier performance wise that you need, but based off of pure algorithms, they would, they would not show up well. That's, uh, that's sort of like the argument uh,
0: against culture right there. So you got these, uh, we, we have a culture and like this person's not on culture as it were, but like you tell everyone to kind of be the same, but at the same time, be a free thinker, think outside yeah, exactly. the box, you know. <laughs> be innovative, right? Like uh, the yeah. You but that's not how we do it here. You know, you get these sort of messages.
2: No, exactly. So, so you can see, I, I have a, a little bit of a, uh, of, of an opinion on on that entire <laughs> practice, and, and a lot of my IO friends don't don't always appreciate my point of view on it. Oh yeah, I, I'm just
1: loving this because I know how many IO psychologists are screaming at their computer or at their phone right now. Like what is this guy talking about? But I I I think that there's uh, definitely some wisdom in what you're saying, Rob. Definitely... I would like to introduce you real quick if that's oh, yeah, okay.
0: Yeah. So, <laughs> so we're talking to,
1: me. yeah, we're talking to Rob King. He is currently, and congratulations on the promotion, the head of data strategy and insights for corporate functions at Takeda. Oh, and we've also had a previous guest, Amit Mohendra from Takeda as well. You guys have got a bunch of rock stars there. And previously he was the head of people analytics at Takeda amongst a few other organizations, but really glad to have you join us today. And we are already spitting fire, which I love and let's keep it going. Um, But Rob, one of the things I wanted to talk to you today about, and I think this is kind of related to what we're saying right now about the personality assessments is, is like what a what are the role of ethics and when it comes to using data about making decisions in an organization? Like I had a conversation with a bunch of folks earlier this week about chat GBT and how everybody was creeped out about using AI to make decisions, but they weren't creeped out about using it to build better PowerPoints or automating workflows or kind of like some of the base functions here. So as you see this in terms of like, the evolution that people analytics is making or analytics in general is making, what is the role of ethics in terms of evaluation? Because I feel like that that lends itself very well with what we were talking about with personality a second ago.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's huge and only continues to get more important. Um, I have a huge passion for this, for this space. Um, and, and I don't view this actually as a people analytics problem in particular. I think what you said, how you kind of said, oh, just analytics in general. Cause it's actually how Takeda approaches it as it's not just a people analytics uh, uh, function to think about the ethics uh, of, of things. So I, I think it, it's really important, but there's no, I don't think there's a general rule that I could uh, list off here and, and just say, Hey, this is what the ethics around analytics is and should be. It depends on, on your company culture, your company's values. Um, you know, maybe your company's even role in society. Um, and, and how you, you'd approach certain things. So, um, you know, internally at Takeda, the, the, we have some absolutely brilliant people. We, we are, our ethics, we have a chief ethics and compliance officer who is C-suite, right, which I know is not always typical that might roll into legal sometimes, but we actually have a, 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 an amazing um, chief ethics uh, and compliance officer. And it was actually her wisdom that that noticed that some of the things that my team was doing and raising, and we, we were talking about the ethics and what's the right thing to do, what's aligned to our values, was very similar to the questions that cybersecurity was talking about, that some of the rest of IT was talking about. And identified that that having a good approach to how an organization should use people data in general um, was an enterprise-wide uh initiative and so we we formed a group that actually brought all of uh, all of these groups together to kind of talk about what the various use cases could be could we actually align our you know can we make promises to employees like what what are our guiding principles on what we would and wouldn't do with employee data and and how do we um you know communicate that out to everybody uh and then how do you actually then govern that process uh oh my god yeah yeah, which which is which is really really great, and I've been so happy to be part of this, uh, and it's yeah shaped a lot of my thinking on on, on what, this. Space,
0: what are some of those loose parameters around the sort of things that uh, are acceptable and not acceptable from uh, like a data permission standpoint. Well, see,
2: like it, it's hard to categorize cuz sometimes things that might cr- creep into something that's a really high risk area might yeah. be acceptable to do. So so you have to take a risk-based approach to things, right? It's and the dimensions we kind of started to well, look do, at. Do you now. mind
1: if I get just kind of practical here for a second? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Like what about things like bad swipes or email metadata or like these are like any of the, what's being called nowadays, like digital exhaust about mm-hmm. employees, like, can we talk about, because like, I feel like this, I, I hear a lot of like vendor presentations on this is like the cool new use cases, but I don't hear a lot of like, how is this actually being used? And what are the discussions that are going on, on the ethics and the data privacy behind this?
2: Yeah. And so we use, we use all of that. Um, and it was uh, right at the onset of the pandemic where we kind of just we knew that we were going to need different types of data sources beyond HCM and survey data. So we knew we were going to need some some badge or kind of telemetry data to understand how people are coming into to you know physical offices. And yeah, and, and then there's the collaboration data using email and calendar metadata and so forth. And and I'll tell you the the first time that I had proposed this to our executive team, uh, did not have the buy-in that I was hoping for it was definitely less than 50 percent and and our, and our it, for all great reasons right our, our our you know the wonderful thing about working at Takeda is like our executive team is very in tune with people and with these these privacy concerns and how people would feel about this and so when I first proposed all of this I, I got mostly a no but our, our CEO he 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 saw the vision but he wasn't going to, you know, the, he, he's an amazing leader and he wouldn't wield his power to just override everybody. So he's like, you got to figure it out, figure out how to get people to work with you and and so forth. So we. We did come up with these guiding principles, right? So I, so I think it, it's kind of they, they are related in this risk based approach, right? Because once you kind of take a risk based approach to this, you, then you start to figure out what how do I mitigate the risks around this? So what mm-hmm. are the risks about trying to use some of this stuff? right? You, you can lose the trust of, of your employees, right? They might feel violated, right? Uh, on how you're using this. There's, there's like real technical risk, Like what happens if this does get out into the wild? What if we, we brought all these data sets together, we've, we've created them, and then there's like a data breach and you can start to see all of this stuff. And I can see your location data with your survey data, with, with all of your email and calendar data at the named level, or what, what if, forget about a data breach, what if your manager was able to get access to that and they knew what you were saying and, and behaving and doing all of that, right? That there's real stakes involved, right? You, people try to draw an analogy with a lot of this stuff to, well, Google has all your information and Facebook has all your information, but there's no stakes involved there. Right, but any time that you you have any of this sort of yeah, it I've been accused of trying to build the NSA before, right? So, but I'll describe how we actually mitigate this risk and uh, and how it kind of and then how it fits into our principles. So, what we ended up uh, understanding was it's really about people's anonymity and feeling privacy, right? So what we ended up doing is building privacy by design into all of the pipelines of the data that we got. So as it comes into our data lake, it passes through this tool called Immuta, uh, which is a Boston-based data governance company. And it actually will take any identifiable information and applies a hash function to it, right? But what's what's really slick about it is that it can apply the same hash. So you set a a common seed on every data set with the same information. So now Mm. my employee ID becomes ABC123, in every data set, so I can still you can, so you can now join it I to can other data sources, Yeah, I can do yeah. My research, but I don't know whose data I'm using. Yeah. And so this it, is and it
1: kind of turns into like a double-blind study, but you can still join the data. That makes sense.
2: Exactly. And, and people could challenge you to say, well, wait a minute, that's not completely fail-safe. Like you could figure out something, right? onesie twosie, but at scale, you wouldn't be able to, right? If you if you knew enough, and this is true of healthcare records as well, right? Like a, this is exactly how we treat patient data, right? All patient data is, um, is is anonymized in this fashion and you buy it from vendors and you can still combine stuff and, and do some of the research, uh, but you can never tie it back to an individual. But if you knew that I had some certain disorder and it's in this state, you could probably uncover me, um, but at scale, you would you wouldn't be able to do it. So, so that's one thing that we did. We built in privacy by design into this uh, to ensure that we're kind of respecting people's you know, feelings right. of privacy. In the U.S., to be honest, most, uh, most people don't get as freaked out about this, but as you go across the world, you go, you go across Europe, um, th- these are things that, that people take very seriously and, and for very good reasons. So, um, but as we, as we took this approach, we were able to not only get uh, the approval of our executive team, but also through workers councils and and so forth. There was only, I think, one country who who opted out of um, of everything we were doing. So uh, that, that,
0: that's a great that's a great success story. Uh, that, that's I've, I've worked with a lot of privacy groups in the past. You know, just because I have close orientation to data and like I understand the need and the difficulty working with uh, say GDPR. But we're also seeing this in the U.S. as well. California's you know, passing a law. They'll restrict data access, New York as well. Uh, but you also like mentioned, like say, like Google, they have all your information, but there's no like immediate consequences to it. I, I think that there, there, there possibly could be if they were to sell your data to who knows who might have it. But what they do a good job of is adding benefit back to the employee or pardon me, to the individual uh, person. So like, uh, you know, uh, how to get somewhere on Google Maps and you can see if there's a wreck down the road, this sort of thing. And I'd I'd love to get to a place where we did this in organizations. It's like democratization of your data. So please share our data with us. Be comfortable with it. And we will show you benefits on the back end. It'll all be hashed. It'll all be private. But we can use this data for good because data becomes far more valuable when it's shared.
2: Yeah, no, a- absolutely. That's the direction we're headed. And, and you're starting to describe my, my new role a, li- a little bit. Um, but you know, as, as far as like, you can take a risk-based approach with this, right? So I actually think it dovetails what you're saying there on, on the types of use cases. Um, because if you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of people, a lot of companies started implementing some pretty sketchy sounding tools, keystroke loggers and I oh, you was know, yeah. look looking at your camera despite because they didn't trust employees. Right. And it was all of that comes down to trying to measure productivity. Right. And whenever you try to start to use these types of tools to measure productivity, that's where people get very, very nervous. Right. So if you look at things from a spectrum uh, across use cases, things that are used for cybersecurity to protect the organization, most of us pretty much accept that the cybersecurity team's looking at our laptop and monitoring what we're sending out to the organization. <laughs> and, and, and most of us never bat an eye about that. Right. Yeah. You know, in our organization, if you tried to send an, uh, uh, an attachment uh, through, through some email, your Gmail, you know, sending out external company, there's a pop-up that reminds you, Hey, this is the policy. Are you sure you want to do this? And you'd be like, no, this is my personal tax information. It's, it's fine. Um, but they're, but they're looking and their systems looking at this, but we don't, most employees don't actually view that as invasive which is kind of interesting right but as you start to get into the employee experience things like i'm i'm collecting and using this information to help you um to help make your life your mm-hmm. organization better people like will like love the benefits but maybe the methods they they don't love uh, maybe I start scanning all your email text, which we don't do. FYI, just for everybody listening, <laughs> we don't do that, right? But you can start to imagine where I could start to use that text to to prompt things for you. Yeah, like, yeah, you know that, that's a little that's a little too far, right? But maybe using the email and calendar metadata to try and help you know uh, create policies to to alleviate you know certain stressors you have and improve the meeting culture. Be like, okay, that that's a that's okay right? So there's like risk, you know, uh, involved there. And then the, the, the other aspect is, is productivity, right? And so so productivity is where if I'm going to start using all these tools to make sure that you are doing everything you're supposed to be doing, um, people get very defensive about this. And and I say, especially Americans, right? So we don't mind when, <laughs> um, right? Uh, we, we don't like being spied on and told what to do. Um, and so... So yeah, we look at things like that way. Now, the other kind of dimension to using data in, in this is um, the kind of the level of data you're using, right? So if you're using anonymous aggregated data, most of the time, that's low risk, right? If you're using individual level data that you anonymize uh, it, or your actions are in aggregate, right? So maybe people analytics teams, we, we build turnover models that'll use individual level data, but the output is completely aggregate. That, that's also maybe slightly more risky, but it's still, you know, it's a little bit more than using completely aggregate data, right? But once you start to get into this space of individual level data to make individual level action, that's where you're gonna start to get into like uh, big trouble. So, and, and we, a lot of the time my, my default stance in people analytics was I would never allow that to happen. So building turnover models, so that managers could go have state conversations with individuals, I fundamentally disagree with. Um, yeah, Th- those are just horrible to begin with. Like first, like just
0: your prediction needs to be like really, really good to yeah. you know have this sort of level of detail. But then, what are you asking the employees to actually do? You're asking a manager to go have a very uncomfortable conversation with an employee about like, hey, like, why are, you, why are you leaving? Like their model says you're about to leave and the employee's like, what, what the hell am I doing in this conversation? Why am I yeah. being attacked like, all of a sudden like for I no had, reason?
2: I had no intention of leaving, but, <laughs> but
0: should I? Like, should Now I, now I should, that? now I
2: should, yeah. Um, I think there's lots of, and that's just the simplest example, um, but it's not always bad, right? It's not always bad to take individual level data for individual level action, mm-hmm. but... Uh, this is where you have to have judgment, right? It's, I don't think there is a one size fits all because, I mean, if you start to think about these, um, these new LMS systems, right? And you have all these recommendation engines, say, hey, you took this or knowing everything we know about you, here's some learning you might want to consider. Or you get mm-hmm. like things like the, the new GLO the, this Gloap platform, like, hey, based on what we know about you, here's a job you could consider, right? As part of your career. These are all good things, but these are actually individual level data for individual level action. Right, so you can't, That's you a have to a risk-based approach to, to all of it, but it's nice to have this structure to say, yeah, all right. I, f-
1: I think the line of delineation there, and this is, I think, really important is, is the action being taken by the organization or is the action being taken by the employee? Because I feel like this is going back all the way to what I was saying earlier about using AI for evaluation purposes versus mm-hmm. just using it to help people out. So I don't think a lot of people are minding when their little AI tool that's on their Fitbit tells them, hey, you didn't get a good night's sleep last night, maybe get a little bit of better night's sleep tomorrow. But if it was your organization that was saying, hey, we were watching you while you were sleeping, you should probably <laughs> sleep some more. that That's a much different kind of, of environment. And so I think that is probably a key line of delineation here. I, I don't know. What do you all think about that?
2: It could. I mean, and maybe even in the exact same use case, uh, I, I mean, I kind of like this this way you're framing it. But it, you know, maybe even sometimes the organization is is the lesser of the evils because imagine the you know, you just have some team's bot that says, "Hey, I was watching you, when you were sleeping. You should probably try to sleep more <laughs> versus the system actually tells your manager to go and have that conversation with you. like, I think that when it becomes personal, is actually where yeah. could get even even worse because then it might even poison the well, so to speak, into the way that the manager views you. Um, well, uh, just just wait till your organization has your Fitbit
0: information and uh, can just uh, you weren't being productive because you were sleeping in this week.
2: Yeah, uh, no, and, and you know this this level of telemetry, maybe not with Fitbits, but where you go and and how often and and. I mean, if you have a company phone, they, they very well could yeah. track your location. Uh, I mean, oh, the
1: example I always use is, hey, we noticed that you went to the restroom one too many times today. <laughs> we we shouldn't, you shouldn't be going to the restroom that much. I'm like, this is like, if, if anything is leading that direction, it doesn't have to get to that end state, but if it's leading that direction, it's probably the wrong decision. Well,
2: so that exact example, I don't know if I had told you this before, like that's a real thing that financial institutions implement for day traders. So people who are on the trading floor at financial institutions, they will actually monitor using video stuff um, how often people go to the bathroom because that is actually apparently a, a good predictor of insider trading. Um, oh. Right. And and so and that's kind of where I say like you can't, I don't believe in like a universal set of principles and values and ethics around things because depending on your industry, depending on your company, there's a different level of tolerance for certain things. And uh, for, you know, in my organization, we like absolutely not, there's no need to ever do that. But if you work in the financial industry and and you're working with people who are trading, you understand that your reputation, your company's reputation depends on actually preventing some of that type of behavior. And you might be willing to give up some of your, you know, personal rights to make sure that it's it's done correctly i mean so it's hard to universally will some of this
1: well i want to go back to something you were saying earlier rob about how your organization has invested at the c-suite level to to really look into some of these things and one of the things that i know when you and i have talked in the past you've mentioned how your organization is one of the few that i think is tightly embedded with the CEO, and with chief executive members of the organization. How, how, were you, how was your team able to get that level of embeddedness with your executives? And what could the people analytics field learn from what you guys have done in the past?
2: Well, it doesn't happen overnight. That, that, that's for sure, right? Um, and, and maybe your experiences may vary with this, right? I, I might have gotten lucky um to me the way i viewed my role as head of people analytics was is sort of like a sales role and a networking role um so you know i viewed it as part of my job to make sure i knew as many of the other leaders as possible and understand what they were focused on and so forth so i always were just going around meeting everybody talking to people you know uh, learning about the business right so that i could get people analytics to to think about the things that or at least present our our findings and results in our work in a frame that makes sense for the business um you know i did get lucky right so so i think some of the the way that i was able to to infiltrate so to speak right and, and get the uh, the visibility and then the the credibility and buy in from the executives was opportunistic um so i think uh, Cole, I, I shared you one it was an ona example um yeah, Whatever. well, let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah, it, and, and it's it wasn't the the highest value um, project, but it was one that at least highlighted that that HR did have capability that most people didn't uh, didn't expect that we did. So, uh, but it's also just a really cool nerdy project. <laughs> so, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, right, everything's now becoming virtual, and at, at Takeda, every year we would have these these big sessions where they would bring the top 300 VPs and leaders across the organization to network with each other, to get to know each other, talk about the the, the organization's biggest problems. And uh, this had always been done in person. You'd fly everybody from around the world to meet each other because you know our leadership believes that they should all know each other. They should be able to really quickly solve problems with each other uh, yeah. cross-functionally, right? So it's really important. So now you have to do this virtually. <laughs> Um, and our CEO was a little nervous. Like, wait, well, you know, how do we make sure that people can, can network with each other and, and meet new leaders? Like, how do, we, how do we make sure that we're not losing something here? So um, his chief of staff is a friend of mine. And, and she had reached out to me and said, Rob, like, do you have any ideas on, on how we could do this? It's like, well, you know, I've been asking for some funding to get the Workplace Analytics, the Microsoft Workplace Analytics data, So that we could, you know, do some stuff in HR. If I had that data here for the top 300, I could maybe help you do your breakout sessions in ways that minimizes the number of connections within the breakout sessions. Um, And they're like, oh, we love this idea because our company is really trying to go data and digital. So I got the little- So bit- wait, 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 are we trying to connect people that
0: aren't otherwise connected into these breakout sessions? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. God, so, yeah.
2: So, so what I ended up doing was uh, design- Great use case, great yeah. use case. Uh, 30 tables of 10 people each that minimizes the number of connections, pairwise connections at that table. Um, and so when we did this, I couldn't believe it actually happened, but it, I had zero connections at all 30 tables which when I also then ran a simulation to say, what if you just did this randomly? Um, like, what is the probability that, that what I just did actually could be zero?
0: Yeah.
2: Um, given, given the actual networks, um, it was a six sigma uh, event, right? Because the average, connection, average number of connections would have been five, right? At, at any 10 person table. And we had zero, which was so far. It was, it was three sigma to, to uh, outlier um so that was pretty cool right and so then our ceo loved this so much that he one of his talks as part of the session was trying to I- advance our, our use of data and digital so he actually had me put together a presentation which even highlighted to them you know it wasn't even by accident that you're all sitting how you're all sitting together hr used this technology to you know used analytics to design this in a way to maximize the number of people you're going to meet and if hr can do this then why can't you
0: Um, And and from
2: that point on, we we were just getting asked more and more and we kind of had a little bit of credibility so that when I did make these requests to say, it was a big change for Takeda for me to get, uh, for my team to get access to the individual level um, survey responses, like for our engagement survey and so forth, like, you know, that would never been done in this organization ever. Um, And it was not something that in the first year we did it that they would even entertain. But I think once we got a little bit of credibility there, um, we were able to kind of chip away and people started asking more and more questions and, uh, yeah, uh, we were able to kind of get, get that seat at the table and we were doing some pretty advanced work, uh, for everybody. Now, another part that I did is part of org structure and I borrowed this from, I don't know who's the first to do it, but I remember talking with, um, with Jeremy Shapiro and with, um, with uh, Chase Robotham out at, at Genentech, how they they had built these consultant groups, right? So people within People Analytics that would go out and partner with the senior HR leaders and their their respective executive teams to um, to just understand their business, translate that into you know People Analytics problems, and kind of be that interface. Um, and so I implemented that pretty early here at at Takeda and. That paid dividends, uh, and I mean we're nonstop. I'm just hearing how wonderful that that team is. <laughs> I almost got tired of it. Uh, you know, they would take things, pass it back to our research team, or um, you know, do some of the work themselves. But it really established us as as almost like business as usual for them, right? It became something where they're they're used to asking HR for more technical things. And, you know, at first it was basic and we built that dashboards and we did all the basic stuff, but pretty soon they realized they could ask more advanced things. And, you know, look, we're a science company, right? We, we're right. So most of our leaders are, uh, you know, are scientists, right? So when they realized that we could speak their language, um, it really helped us quite quite a bit.
0: Um, and we're, we're also seeing like, we've conducted like, I don't know, like 20, 30 interviews now. Like we're seeing this like, um, pattern of start small, show a small win here and there, and then people start asking for more and more. And then you can like really grow your people analytics uh, foundation uh, out yeah. to other.
2: Yeah. And, and it's okay to take risks to take on projects yes. you don't necessarily know you could do. Right. So I, I took that one for the CEO that I, had, I to be fully transparent. I had no idea whether or not I could pull that off. <laughs> but, and, and I only had uh, two and a half weeks to do it well you want you wanna see if you can
0: pull something else off Uh-oh. uh this is five questions here and uh these were all generated by chat GPT so <laughs> we, we can all like blame our uh robot masters if this doesn't go well and Cole, feel free to play along here uh, so do you have like a random superpower like perhaps useless, perhaps not useless, but a random superpower
2: Random superpower uh I have nerdy hobbies, like I like uh, that. Uh, so I, I'm actually a chess master. Uh, oh and, wow!
0: I mean, there we go. Yeah,
2: so so I'm a I'm a national master in in chess, which you know it's a pretty useless superpower. Um, but yeah, I've dedicated a lot oh, of my like, life to that game. There's a lot of planning and like strategy. No, oh, absolutely. There, so I mean, it, it teaches you how to be humble and and how to lose. Uh, it teaches you how to take risks. It teaches you how to uh, to think both in the immediate tactical and in the long-term strategic simultaneously. Um, so I wouldn't call this useless. I mean, this is great for, <laughs> for a leader of an organization, right? I, I would think so, yeah. Um, there's probably lots of ways to get to <laughs> it. Um, but yeah, so so there there's one, I guess. What about you, Cole? Yeah, I, I was. I
1: don't know if this is a superpower, but you definitely have top five hair in people analytics, Rob. <laughs> very, very good hair.
2: Very, very, very gray.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, Rob, what was your favorite TV show as a kid? Ooh, as a kid, this is what ChatGPT wants to know from you.
2: I mean, when I was a kid, I loved, like, a young kid, I loved all the Nick at Night stuff. So I remember Get, oh, Smart, yeah. Get Smart was, like, my, my jam as a, as, a, as a kid kid. Um, and then as I got a little bit older, Seinfeld, you know, uh, became maybe it. Um, I've been watching Seinfeld since, you know, when it, when it first started. Do you have any uh, fashion trends that you wish you did not follow? Fashion trends, I didn't follow. I mean m- horrific, like high school photos of some sort. Oh, of course I do. Like I <laughs> you're, you're not getting any of them. Uh in high school, I actually had my hair parted in the middle, like the whole thing like that. Oh yeah. Like the like the Kurt Cobain look. Um, but I definitely didn't pull it off. We'll put it that way.
0: Cole, got any embarrassing photos over there? Too many to count, but we can too just too many to count right over that. <laughs> All right, Rob, uh, just a couple more. Uh, what role do you fill best in a team? Well, if you, if there's a team, what role do you best fill? Hmm. If I'm leading it or if I'm a part of it, Just a team is formed. Um, are you a natural leader? Do you see yourself that way? Like you
2: generally like rise to that sort of role. I think so. Um, yeah. and so I, I tend to try to understand like what gaps are on teams and then try to try to actually fill those so if a if a team needs humor like uh i mean one thing you probably figure out i I don't take myself too seriously uh most of the time like i can get serious but i tend to you know my default position is like let's have fun while doing what we're doing but you know if if the team needs somebody to be provocative and ask the the questions even if i don't believe in them uh even believe in the questions i'm asking and i feel like (laughs) like i i will be devil's advocate um you know, and I, and I also just, I'm a natural networker, even though I'm an introvert and I, and I don't love large social interactions. I, I am a innate networker. And so usually in a team, I, I like to, you know, connect the dots for people and connect other people and organizations and, um, try to figure out how to, how to maximize the value, not just for my own team, but for organization in general. I'm sure that
0: provides you a lot of like, uh, informational advantage as well social capital being able to connect these different dots and be rather creative in how you approach things but also speaking of the network uh this is probably chat gpt really wants to know from you if you only had one app on your phone what would it be Ooh,
2: one app on my phone um i would definitely get rid of email because i could definitely do it <laughs> uh probably spotify oh okay that's a yeah. good one yeah yeah what, I think what, I would
1: have, would, what would yours be, Scott? I'm just probably curious. find
0: my phone, find my phone app. <laughs> <laughs> Although that's like I, a circular loop—you have <laughs> your phone, or
1: you don't have your phone, and there you have find your phone.
0: Uh, right, right now, it would have to be TikTok until the government uh, wishes it away into the cornfield. But uh, tons of information, great search utility there.
2: Yeah, TikTok's not going to have a long life
0: in this country. I don't foresee it either. No.
1: Yeah. I was going to say YouTube because I'm older and I don't have a, <laughs> a TikTok. I, I suppose
2: I could amend it with a little asterisk because I, I, I do drive a Tesla. And so my my Tesla at my, my phone is my key. And so I can't drive my car. Oh, yeah. So, so that, that one has to be default. That's like basic utilities. Um, but then it's fun.
1: Well, you want to join us in the nerdering?
2: Yeah, let, let's go. What, what do you got?
1: Well, uh, I think the first article I have today, and I I may get on on a rant about this, I may not, is about an article from Axios. It says, Silicon Valley Bank employees blame remote work for bank failure. And I guess the rant I want to have, and I'll just make it short, is can we stop blaming random shit for why Silicon Valley Bank failed? (laughs) It's not remote work. It's not diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's not because, you know, capitalists or evil capitalists or venture capital bankers. It's because they had a really bad risk portfolio and interest rates went up and math happened. Math happened. And so their investments went bad. And because of that, people withdrew their money and they made a run on the bank. And that's how banks fail. That's how Silicon Valley Bank failed. Not because of remote work. Do you guys think it was because of remote work that Silicon Valley
0: Bank failed? I think that that's a really good point. Like banks have failed in the past, way before remote work. It really wasn't because of remote work. Uh, I I find this like really interesting because all during the pandemic, we heard from employees and you see all these articles coming out that essentially people don't want to go back to the office. Right as soon as it fails, that that gets the blame right there. It's also like a really concerning trend where I, I don't. I, I see increasingly that people are less and less willing to take responsibility for failure. You know, you, you can't really learn if you're always externalizing these sort of things. Um,
1: but do you want to talk about this, Scott? Because actually, I have some thoughts on this. I'm, yeah, I, I didn't realize that this was going to be part of the discussion, but. I think there's a reason for why people are less willing to take responsibility. I think there's like a a natural reason and an unnatural reason. I think the natural reason is I think the consequences of failure are so much higher nowadays because in the past, your failure was just a failure. Now your failure because of the Internet and because of like, you know, social media and all that, it can follow you for the rest of your life. Right. You get get
0: stigmatized by your failure.
1: And so, like, you just keep failing over and over and over again when people rediscover your failure in the future, right? I think the unnatural thing is just human beings are selfish creatures, and they've always been selfish creatures, and so nobody wants to own up to accountability. But, like, I feel like that's yeah. always existed, so why why would that have changed more recently?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, of, there's a societal thing there, too. Like, we've – more and more, kids don't learn how to lose, So the whole like natural Mm. competition and what sports and everything teaches you and like the consequences of just not not winning something uh we're we're taking that away like the you know i don't want to sound like this like this boomer you know super right-wing guy uh, because i'm not uh but this whole everyone gets a trophy kind of thing like i i I do see it right uh in, in a lot of things where people just don't know how to lose but you know what, that's why I love chess. Like it, you know, the first time you lose to a nine-year-old boy, you know, when you're (laughs) uh, a little humbling. Yeah. You learn, you learn how to lose real quick. Um, And and the people who don't know how to lose well, don't succeed in that game. Or if
1: you're acting like a nine-year-old boy, you turn over the chess table and you say, (laughs) suck it.
2: Yeah,
0: (laughs) Um, Like a uh, real housewife. Yeah. Just flip the table over. But like th- like that, that, that stigma aspect of uh, failing and cu- coupled with like the more interconnectivity we have. So like if you fail at one company and you go to a different company like, due to LinkedIn, your, your network probably knows each other. And those stories can carry from one org to the other where, I don't know, 1950s or 60s, you can.
2: Although um, I, at the executive level. Like, I, I somehow feel like there's less of an impact, you know, with, with all the golden parachutes. Like, there was... Oh, yeah. They, they were able to take these risks because there really isn't any consequence to a bank. Like, they knew they were going to get kind of bailed out when they take dumb risks because they because the impact to the economy. Like, yeah, maybe some investors didn't get their money in this situation, but... Uh, for the most well, part, and, they got bailed and out. And now
1: they'll get big paid speaking gigs because now they're experts on bank failure. And so they can go give all the keynotes about bank failures in the future too. Um,
2: no, it, it, absolutely. You know, whether or not the remote aspect of this has anything to do with it. I mean, it's like you heard the same thing with Yahoo, right? When, when Marissa Mayer went and took this over, trying to pull everybody back. and the, It still failed. Um, So no, I, like, I, I'm trying to imagine a situation in where, like, what does he have to read the vibe in the room? Like, hey, maybe this is a little too, too risky. It's like, I was like, no, you should have known this is a bad bet. But they deliberately knew what they were doing was, was going to be super risky because they were actively lobbying to repeal Dodd-Frank for, for organizations that had a certain threshold of assets under management, right? So that's what happened. And then they took a wild ass bet. They were really wrong. And then Peter Thiel just goes out and creates a run of the bank. Right. Uh, so, yeah. Are you
1: sure it wasn't remote workers? I feel like it was yeah. the remote workers, though. So.
0: <laughs> well, like, what well, one of the things that they do point to in the article is that they had uh, executives essentially globally distributed. Like, so you're working across time zones at this point, and it's just hard. You get like a collaboration tax. Uh, which I, I don't know if that would have solved any sort of single bad decision that they had if they were all say in the same conference room every day, um, but I, th- there is something to this idea where it's hard to get a hold of mm-hmm. somebody or you got to like schedule everything at half hour, hour increments.
2: Um, sure, but I mean, just th- th- it slows the, everything the, down because the way you work has to change. Doesn't mean that you just blame the the whole concept of remote work totally agree it just means that they they weren't smart enough maybe to figure if that had anything to 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 do with it which i still i still doubt um because like i said they were actively lobbying for what they did right so so they they knew what they were doing was risky um
0: there's an article there, there's an article in this uh, link. It links to a, a different story uh, essentially showing that Best Buy had a similar sort of uh, circumstance where they were uh, very, quite some time ago, they had gone to a hybrid sort of uh, orientation and they seen like bad results and then pulled away from that before the pandemic. I think NASA also saw some like a decline in their, uh, the quality of the proposals that they were making. Uh, which which is a different story than uh, you know fraud and total failure definitely but yeah. uh, like
1: it's would hard to do. you hate ju- waking up 1 hour earlier <laughs> I know I hate waking up <laughs> 1 hour earlier
2: uh, yeah well- <laughs> When you when you have almost five year old twins, your wake up time is is not something you have full control over. <laughs>
0: that, that that was Cole saying he was tired of that story. We should move on to something yeah, more
2: interesting perhaps. I mean, I think uh, it's fascinating in general, but it has nothing to do with remote work. Uh, no. Yeah, just banks <laughs> take taking- that, that they shouldn't take.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, we're we're getting a little away away from Daylight Savings Day. Uh, boy, it it really kicked my butt this year. Like I was grumpy as heck all that week. But uh, we have a collection of studies from Ethan Mollick, and we, we steal his stuff quite often. We should uh, reach out to him, essentially showing that uh, not only can Daylight Savings Day, uh day time, like kick your butt, but it can be dangerous too. So 1.5 billion people are impacted by Daylight Savings, and uh, they find that there's 30 additional uh, deaths due to uh, fatal car crashes annually. Uh, compared to other Mondays of the year, there's more workplace injuries. I think that uh, sleep deprivation is the ultimate culprit here, which uh, that resonates with me. There is a very, very slight gain in electricity savings, uh, but this does improve the further north you are, or further away, actually, uh, from the equator. Uh, and there is a uh, slight uh, decrease in the frequency of collisions with uh, wildlife, namely koalas in Australia. Yeah. But uh, what what say y'all about daylight savings? I mean, well, first of all, keep your head on a swivel about those koalas.
1: They're a <laughs> <yes>. menace. <laughs> we,
0: when we I was in Louisiana, our... <laughs> in Louisiana, they're all over clearly.
1: No, I am very much in support of legislation that gets proposed every year and never makes it through about canceling <laughs> daylight
2: savings time. But, but it has like a scientific basis to it. Like, I mean, we, we do it to, to keep the calendar uh, correct, right? Um, it's not some arbitrary thing. It's not like a holiday.
1: Right? I thought it was because of farmers. That's probably maybe an urban myth, but I thought it was because of farming.
2: I thought it was because
0: they didn't want the little school kids sitting out in the bus stop
2: in the middle of the night. See now 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 I need to we should ask ChatGPT why why daylight saving times exists and what uh, what the impact of removing it would be. Uh,
0: well, apparently, be thirty deaths would not occur, fewer <laughs> accidents, this sort of thing. Uh, I absolutely hate it. Like I, I don't understand it. I, I prefer. Uh, regular
2: time standard time. yeah
1: it's not any good it's not helping well, it, anybody let's well, stop it let's create
2: a movement when you lose an hour yeah that that's like but like then there's the other you know when it goes back it feels actually pretty pretty great right oh so, was there a better day in college than uh
0: daylight savings fall back or whatever when you got like you go to the bar and it's like 2 a.m and then like the bar rolls back for another hour you get to drink well, some I, more I don't want to fall
1: back either i want to get rid of both of them
0: I agree. I agree. It shouldn't change. Then you have this like this other issue where, like Arizona, I don't think that they do
2: it. So I I just googled this. Like I'm, I'm actually, I I think I was confusing daylight savings time and leap years. Um, yeah, it actually just seems it was a proposal to save energy, save lives, and reduce crime. Is like the stated purpose behind it, and Arizona just doesn't bother.
0: Reduce crime is an interesting aspect, I guess, because there's like fewer night hours. Yeah. Well, n- not technically. I mean, you okay. saw the same number, just different shift on the clock.
1: Well, let's just say, well done, Arizona.
2: Well done.
0: Well done, Arizona. Although, if yeah. you had to
2: choose, if you had to choose between that and a and let's say a four day work week, which one would you choose? Oh, wait, wait. So, so four day work week versus. Daylight savings, yeah, like abolishing daylight savings time. Right? So
1: one day a year, like one hour a year, or one day a week, fifty-two weeks a year. Is this the trade? <laughs> yeah, this is that, not a fair trade.
2: No. So that's the legislation I want to say. actually. I, I did see, I, I think, a recent article. Somebody was proposing, like, trying to adopt thirty-two hours as like a U.S. full working week, but not forty. Like, kind of like the French, right? I think. Yeah. The French is on thirty-two. I think the Austrians are on thirty-five, maybe um i know it varies country to country but like you know we we work more than more than any country maybe except for japan
0: yeah. <laughs> i, I used i'll, to work I'll do a, it
1: if arizona does it first uh, about
0: that? I, I used to work at a company that had a 35-hour work week and it, it was my experience that uh people just habituated that became your new normal and then they would complain like oh it's fridays and like i got the I got the Mondays, as they said in office space, you know this sort of thing.
1: Somebody's got a case of the
2: Mondays. Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Are oh, you gonna bring it home, man? But this yeah. is the type of it's it's that somebody's gonna use the daylight savings time someday to try to appease somebody and 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 almost divert the attention away from trying to reduce the amount of American work weeks. Maybe that's <laughs> what will happen.
1: Yeah, and and it'll probably be because all those pesky remote workers. That that's what it comes back exactly. To. I think it's the koalas.
0: I think it's the koalas.
1: Absolutely. Well, we have officially gone off the rails, which
0: tells us (laughs) that it's near
1: the end of the podcast. Rob, you've been great. But before I give you the final word, um, Scott, any final words from you?
0: Rob, it was great having this conversation today. Uh, How can folks get in contact with you if they want to reach out?
2: LinkedIn, uh, you could try. I mean, it's a little overwhelming at the moment. You can imagine taking a new role. um, Oh, yeah. When their cousin trying to, uh, to ping me, but definitely can can find me on, on LinkedIn. And um, I don't know if I still have my link up there, but I, I do as part of my commutes, people can sign up for time with me. And, um, and I think Cole is doing this as well. Right? I think I razzed you on LinkedIn about it. Um, oh, so, yeah, you did. Yeah, you can sign up on my on my LinkedIn. And just to talk, you know, if you want to chat about anything um, on my commute home, because I, you know, driving home from Cambridge to Framingham Mass is you know about an hour. so uh, I got nothing better to do. So if you uh, yeah, if you want to talk about people analytics, analytics in general, chess, you know, whatever you want to talk about, you can um, go on my LinkedIn and find find that link. What a fantastic idea. This
0: is like the natural networker coming out in you. It's like you got this uh, time in your day where you can actually meet people and exchange ideas. and
2: I wish I could take full credit for it. I, I did steal it from uh, Ben Taylor the the AI guy, he previous
1: would, guest on the podcast.
2: Oh, was he? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I followed him since his uh, higher view days, and uh, and he would just like post randomly on LinkedIn saying, uh, "Hey, if anybody wants to chat on my ride home, you know, here's my cell phone number or something, right?" So something crazy. And I was like, "Well, I'm not going to give everybody a cell phone, <laughs> but I'll I'll put a Calendly link and and schedule it." And I started that in. October of 2019 and I think I've had something like 80 over 80 conversations with people wow which is pretty cool yeah you get to meet a lot of really interesting people it's sometimes the college kids who are just like looking to network and understand career opportunities sometimes it's senior HR leaders I talked to some marketing analytics people who just wanted to understand the parallels between uh between the two fields um uh yeah, just lots of, you know, you never know what you're going to get and it's, uh, but most of the time it's, I'd say 95% of the time it's actually quite enjoyable.
1: Absolutely. And the thing I would say here too, and we've talked about it a lot on the podcast uh, from the ONA research is it creates manufactured serendipity. It's like, these are the connections you probably never would have made otherwise. And who knows about kind of the you know, butterfly flaps its wings in China and a tornado happens in Texas, the outcomes that would change your life that come from it or change the other person's life. So I think it's amazing that you do that kind of thing, Rob, and and I, I will keep copying you on it and copying Ben Taylor and just being a nice person as well. But thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and you've been listening to Directionally Correct, uh, People Analytics Podcast with Colin Scott and Rob King from Takeda.
0: Thanks, Rob.
2: No, thanks, guys. This is great. As always, all opinions are our own
0: and do not reflect those of any other organization.
1: You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott, powered by Orognostic.